Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Lauren. And this is the BioEats World Journal Club, where every Thursday we discuss breakthrough scientific research, the new opportunities it presents, and how to take it from paper to practice. So Lauren, what's the topic of today's Journal Club? Today's topic is the innate immune system, which we've actually discussed twice on Journal Club, first in the context of a host virus arms race, and then just last week when we discussed why only some people get severe COVID. As a reminder, there are two arms to the immune system, the innate and the adaptive. The adaptive is the more well-known of the two, as it is composed of T-cells, B-cells, and antibodies, and it is tuned to recognize and respond to very specific pathogens. But when exposed to a new pathogen, the adaptive immune system takes time to educate itself and produce those T-cells and antibodies. This is where the innate immune system comes into play, as it is our fast-acting, first line of defense and is non-specific, so it can identify a wide range of bacteria, viruses, and other invaders. Most cells in our body can mount some form of innate immunity, but there are also dedicated cells of the innate immune system called myeloid cells, of which macrophages are the most well-known. Now, back to this week's topic, we're talking about how to activate the innate immune system for therapeutic potential. That sounds like a really powerful tool. How would you activate the innate immune system, and what kinds of diseases or conditions could this be used to treat? In the article we're discussing today, the authors created a synthetic nanoscale germ, which they called a nanobiologic, that activates the innate immune response. They then showed that this nanobiologic could be used to treat an aggressive form of cancer in mice and works in synergistic combination with other anti-cancer therapeutics. I'm joined to discuss these exciting results by Dr. Willem Mulder, professor at the Aiken School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and the senior author of the study. Our conversation begins with Dr. Mulder describing the activated state of the innate immune system called trained immunity. So this is a concept that Mihai Netea, who's an infectious disease specialist in the Netherlands, in relation to the BCG vaccine, which is a vaccine against tuberculosis. And so if you try to infect them with tuberculosis, you see obviously protection, but what he also observed was non-specific protection against different types of infections. And so this new concept, which is referred to as trained immunity, which is essentially a state of enhanced alertness of your innate immune system. And it's non-specific. It's not so like the adaptive immune system where you can get very specific immune responses, which are antigen-specific. This is more like a functional state of the innate immune system that makes it more alert and better equipped to resist infections. So when I think of immunity, that makes me think of the adaptive immune response and saying like with COVID, I've seen COVID, I've developed antibodies to COVID. If I'm exposed to COVID, I'm going to mount this immune response. But that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about trained immunity. We're talking about the innate immune system more active and ready to respond. So it's not after something specific, it's just heightened. Trained immunity is an epigenetic state and that simply allows these cells to be more responsive upon a challenge. So it's not like they're already in a different state, but epigenetically, you know, they're more alert. 
Right. So within cells, how tightly DNA is packaged is very highly regulated through what's called epigenetic modifications. These don't change the sequence of the genome, but they make it more or less accessible to the machinery that turns genetic information into RNA and proteins. So what's happening here is that in these cells of the innate immune system, when they're trained, like with the BCG vaccine, is that epigenetic modifications are opening up their DNA in particular ways that make it easier for them to mount a nonspecific immune response to lots of different kinds of pathogens. But in this paper, you aren't looking at the immune response to pathogens. You're looking at it during cancer. So how does the innate immune system naturally function during cancer? Our immune system is very well equipped to take care of any malignancies. Normally, these things are identified and are being eliminated. Some cancers have specific mechanisms by which they actually hijack the innate immune system to protect itself against the adaptive immune system. So essentially, the innate immune system is working with the cancer against the host. And so then you get a very immunosuppressive microenvironment that essentially is a protective shell against the adaptive immune system, against attacks from T cells. So that's how a tumor protects itself against our immune system. So in the clinic right now, we have a few different kinds of therapies that use the adaptive immune system to target cancer. And these are checkpoint therapies and CAR-T therapies. So how do these therapies work to fight cancer? Well, so as you refer to, they, they act on or they mobilize T cells. And so checkpoint inhibitor drugs, they essentially block all kinds of molecular mechanisms that you know, prevent T cells from becoming activated. And when you block immune checkpoints, you get activation of T cells. They start proliferating and then they are better equipped to attack tumor cells. CAR T is essentially taking T cells from individuals and then genetically modifying them so that they can better attack tumor cells. So checkpoint inhibition is almost becoming a standard of care. CAR T is extremely expensive, but it shows great promise in some type of tumors. But it's all focused on T lymphocytes. Both of those, checkpoint therapy and CAR-T therapy, activate and engage T-cells, which are, of course, members of the adaptive immune response. What are the key downsides of these therapies, and why do we need additional flavors of immuno-oncology? I wouldn't necessarily call it downsides. It's just you would like to mobilize our entire immune system to fight off the cancer. And so additionally, you would also like the myeloid cells, the innate immune cells, also to work against the tumor. So the checkpoint inhibition therapy is a true revolution. And, you know, people who were deemed uncurable previously, you know, now have some hope. But it works for a relatively small subset of patients, around 10, 20%. And, you know, hopefully if you also mobilize the innate immune system, that will help a significantly larger fraction of, of the patients suffering from specific malignancies. That makes sense, particularly since the innate immune system is co-opted by the cancer. And to kind of reverse that and get the innate immune system back working for the human, that could be like a really synergistic effect. 
in addition to the therapies targeting the adaptive immune system. Now that we have this background on kind of the innate immune system, what trained immunity is and why you are trying to leverage this in immuno-oncology, let's get into the specifics of your study. Your work is aiming to develop a trained immune response by administering what's called a nanobiologic. So what is a nanobiologic and how does it work? We refer to our nanotechnology as nanobiologic technology because it's exclusively composed of natural building blocks. And so we base it on lipoproteins. Lipoproteins are essentially natural nanoparticles that float around in our body and they transport fatty molecules. So we take the key components of lipoproteins and then we engineer large libraries of all kinds of differently sized nanobiologics that have different compositions and molecular structures. And so these nanomaterials themselves they very nicely interact with innate immune cells and specifically myeloid cells and the progenitors of myeloid cells. But that doesn't do anything. And so then we subsequently functionalize these nanobiologics. We decorate the surface with peptidoglycan derivatives. Peptidoglycans are polymers that are present in bacterial walls. So we take the ingredients in the bacterial wall that induce trained immunity, and then we template that on top of our nanobiologics. And then you essentially get an artificial nano-sized microbe or germ. This makes me think of what you're talking about in the beginning with like how trained immunity was discovered originally, which was through this vaccine that was for tuberculosis. And if I remember right, that vaccine is actually a derivative of tuberculosis that infects cows and that it activates your innate immune system and it brings it to this trained state where it's now able to prevent infection by a lot of different pathogens. But in this case, instead of giving this derivative of bovine tuberculosis, you're taking those parts that are recognized, that's the parts of the bacterial cell wall, putting them on the scaffold, and then administering it to get that same desired trained immune response. It's almost literally what we've done. And so I've had a meeting with Mir Metea, who's behind that trained immunity concept. And we're just discussing, you know, can we design a nanobiologic that induces trained immunity? So we looked at like what in the BCG vaccine induces trained immunity that he already, you know, teased out in the lab. And it's like, okay, that, that's something that we should be able to integrate in our platform. The first prototype of that nanobiologic, we had it working in two months. That's awesome. So what were the properties you were looking for? How did you know that these nanobiologics were working? Yeah, so we first have this package of experiments that we unleashed on that mini library where we investigated pharmacokinetics, biodistribution, stability, and in vitro trained immunity induction. And from that screen, we identified a lead nanobiologic that we deem to have the best properties for a full-blown study. So then we first did a more extensive in vitro analysis of how this lead nanobiologic induces trained immunity in primary human cells. So you can look at the epigenetic background of these cells as a result of the induction of trained immunity using our technology. We look at the responsiveness of these cells. So are they hyper-responsive? when you re-stimulate them. Let's talk about like what happens to 
the immune cells when they're exposed to this nanobiologic. Like, let's unpack a little bit more what it means to have these changes in their epigenetic state and how changes in the epigenetic state lead to an anti-cancer response. Okay, there's essentially two levels. So on the level of the individual cell or what's happening systemically. And so let me first walk you through what's happening on the level of an individual cell. So you essentially have monocytes, which are the precursors of macrophages and dendritic cells, the innate immune cells. And we expose these cells to our nanobiologic for 24 hours. And then we wash these cells and we let them rest for five days. But upon re-stimulation with a different stimulus, you see that the cells that were first exposed to our nanobiologic are hyper-responsive. And so they produce cytokines at increased levels. The underlying reason for the increased cytokine response, that is epigenetics. And so that is a change in the accessibility to specific genes. And in this case, genes that regulate cytokine expression. Right. So this nanobiologic is influencing how the DNA is packed in these cells of the innate immune system, which is allowing for expression of these cytokines, which are basically the messengers in the body that say mount an immune response. We were talking earlier about how the innate immune system gets co-opted by cancer and forms this immunosuppressive environment. So they're trying to turn the immune response off, but cytokines are kind of the opposite of this. They're pro-inflammatory. They're saying bring them an immune response here. So with the induction of that cytokine response, it's now making the tumor kind of visible again to the immune system. Yeah. So then the next level is that monocytes have a lifespan of a couple of days. But in patients, trained immunity is observed, let's say, you know, at least half a year, sometimes up to two, three years. So that cannot explain durable effects of trained immunity. And so if you look at then how trained immunity is regulated systemically, it's because it becomes a property of the progenitor cells, which are essentially the parents of immune cells. And so these parents get rewired, and then their offspring has trained functional state. And that gives rise to a production bias. And so specific subsets of progenitor cells more actively proliferate. They give rise to more immune cells. These cells have their trained immunity functional state. And these trained cells travel to the tumor and they accumulate in the tumor. And then you see a rebalancing of that tumor microenvironment going from immunosuppressive to more of an anti-tumor type of tumor microenvironment. So what kind of impacts did you see in a cancer model with this nanobiologic? Was it able to clear cancer? Was it able to reduce cancer? How effective was it? So we took mouse models, B16F10 mouse melanoma model, which is extremely aggressive cancer. When you inoculate mice with this specific cancer, essentially they survive about two weeks. And so this is a very fast-growing tumor. And so depending on the regimen of the nanobiologic we've done, we can get not very strong inhibition of tumor growth and a very strong inhibition and almost complete inhibition of tumor growth. So very nice, I don't know if you can call that nice, but a, a dose response. So you were able to control this very aggressive cancer using this trained immune nanobiologic. 
In your study, you also use these in combination with therapies that engage the adaptive immune system, specifically checkpoint inhibitors, which we discussed activate T-cells. What was the inspiration for this combination and why did you want to combine adaptive and innate activating methods? Yeah, so the idea behind combining it with checkpoint inhibition therapy is that, okay, now we have something that kind of rebalances the innate immune system that would suggest that then T cells also get better access to a tumor. So then you could think of this as could be a two-pronged approach. You first induce trained immunity, and then you activate T cells, and then they can very efficiently attack tumor cells. And so that works spectacularly well, I would say. And so there's no effects of checkpoint inhibition on this model whatsoever. And then we saw in subsets of animals complete tumor remission. And so we didn't hold just the tumor growth. We saw in about 50% of the animals that the tumors completely disappear. So that was very encouraging, especially in light of this tumor type being extremely aggressive and also known to very poorly respond to checkpoint inhibition therapy. And so now we suddenly see that it works really well after we induce trained immunity. Yeah, we mentioned in the introduction that checkpoint immunity only works maybe 10% of the time. But now combining it with this trained immunity, you're first kind of taking down the immunosuppressive shield. And now these reactivated T cells now have better access to it and can fight it more effectively. And that leads to this really amazing result of making something that didn't respond to checkpoint inhibitors. Now, all of a sudden, it responds to checkpoint inhibitors, and you can actually see the disappearance of the tumor, possibly. So my last question regarding the results is, is there a risk of overactivating the immune system with this approach, particularly with the activation of both the innate and adaptive immune systems? you know, something like autoimmunity or anaphylaxis, you know, have you seen any evidence of that or is that a concern? It is a serious concern, but I don't think we have to be too concerned about it. But from all the work that has already been done with the BCG vaccine, you know, there's not too many safety concerns. There's probably hundreds of millions of people have been BCG vaccinated and we've done some safety work in mice and also non-human primates. And so it was very well tolerated. So the next step to clinical translation, so to studies in patients. That looks very encouraging. Well, that's a perfect segue. Let's talk about what these next steps are to go from paper to practice. What is needed to get this type of therapy into the clinic? So I worked together with Mihai Nitea and with Asai Fayad. We founded a startup company called Trained Therapeutics Discovery. I started working with Mount Sinai Innovation Partners, you know, to see you know, how we could potentially leverage the intellectual property and the science that we were building and the technology that we developed, you know, for a biotech startup from Sinai. It was pretty intense, huh? because you first need to do all that science, and then we had to write these patent applications. We had to look at what is the business case going to be, what is the development plan, and that's a really like iterative process, <laughs> and then. You learn while you're going. So if I look back at it now, it's made so many mistakes. But ultimately, you know, we raised the seed fund. And that takes us essentially to about a little over two years of the development program. Could you outline what the big 
hurdles that you're working on with your company in terms of like the scientific hurdles you still need to overcome with this? Yeah, so it's critical that you establish manufacturing in a cost-effective, efficient manner. We now have developed a method and validated that method for the scaling of the production. It's relatively straightforward to do this in the lab for, let's say, a mouse dose. But to scale this for humans, that's a challenge. That's really interesting. I wouldn't have thought that manufacturing would have been like one of the first things you thought about in this company. I would have thought that you would have done that, you know, after preclinical, after, you know, maybe even like once you've like seen phase two or something like that. I didn't realize that that would be something you'd want to have locked down so early in the process. Yeah, if you can pull that off, it's no value, essentially. It's not going to happen. And so typically in a university setting, it's more of a prototype that you work with. But then you kind of have to start from scratch. Then you have to optimize everything. And that's what we're doing right now. Are there other applications for nanobiologics, either as a training agent or in other capabilities? Yeah, so because we're focusing on essentially innate immune regulation, you know, through the progenitors that has application in many different types of diseases. On the one hand, where you would like to dial up the innate immune responses, and on the other hand, where you would like to dial down these type of inflammatory innate immune responses. So the inhibition of innate immune responses in transplantation, we do this in cardiovascular disease. Uh, lots of studies already show that it's very effective to reduce atherosclerotic plaque inflammation that cause myocardial infarction or stroke. And we're also working on infection, things like sepsis, these kind of problems. So we're very active in all kinds of different diseases. Very cool. Willem, thank you so much for joining me today on Journal Club to discuss your work. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. And that's it for Journal Club this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.